So, a um, little recap of, uh, or overview of biblical history. God willed it that he would send his son into the world uh, to live the life that we can never live ourselves, to, to live in that holy, unbroken relationship with, with the Father, to die the death that was intended for us and to raise again to new life, bringing us uh, to life, redeeming us, bringing us back into relationship with God. I might sit down today since we have a little smaller crowd. Is that cool? And uh, this then begins with a people because in order to have a Messiah, Christ, he had to come through a people. And so for over a couple thousand years, God, God through the prophets, began telling this people that, that there would be this Messiah who comes through them, and then through them, he's going to bless the entire world and draw all of humanity back to himself through this people. And so what we're doing this morning is we are backing up to the beginning of this people. Um, as, as we know, Abram uh, was, was this, uh, the, the father of this, this people. Uh, God spoke to Abraham directly and said, through your seed, through your family, I'm going to bless the entire world. And then Abr Abram's son, who? Let's see, let's test a little quiz here. Isaac. Isaac. The seed was passed on, the promise was passed on, and the Messiah will now come through Isaac. And then Isaac gave birth to twins, Jacob, Jacob and Esau. Esau. And who was the most likely candidate to become the, uh, the inheritance of this seed, this promise of the Messiah. It was Esau. It was Esau, the firstborn. Exactly. And uh, what we're going to be seeing is that God is flipping things up all through history. And the likely candidate often isn't the one that God chooses. He chooses the unlikely. Uh, and so God chooses the younger son, Jacob, the weaker son, Jacob. And he says, through, through Jacob, through Jacob, the Messiah is going to come. Through his seed, I'm going to use Jacob to fulfill my promise and to redeem humanity, to bring them back to myself. And so we're backing up to right there with Jacob this morning, and we're going to be looking at this story of Jacob and his wives, um, how he has two wives, and they're also his cousins. Like, you can ask John about that, I guess, because uh, um, I don't know. Ask Jess. <laughs> no, I'm not saying John. Exactly. I'm just saying, I don't, what I'm saying is don't ask me. Gosh. You guys take everything so, yeah. I'm not saying that John has two wives or. That are his cousins. That we know of. Married your cousins? Um, all right. So. We are, we're starting a series. You guys threw me all off. We're, you did. These two. <laughs> we're starting a series called Profiles of the Unlikely. And what we're going to be doing is, just, like, just as Jacob was unlikely himself, we're going to begin looking through the scriptures and really profiling some key people in the scriptures who were unlikely to be used by God. And I say unlikely in, in uh, the eyes of their culture, they were unlikely. Um, the two, two, uh, uh, two things that each of the people we're going to profile have in common, which makes them unlikely, or one of them makes them unlikely, and then the other one is just uh, this phenomenally beautiful way that God chooses to use them, is one, we're going to be profiling women. Women in the ancient world were unlikely. Just because of uh, the fact that you are a woman makes you unlikely. The, the ancient Jewish prayer that every good Jew should pray was, God, thank you that I'm not a Gentile, that I'm not uneducated, and that I'm, I'm not a woman. Um, every, every good Jew was, was to pray, or uh, Jewish man was to pray that prayer. And so they're women, and they're also in the lineage of Jesus. They're in this seed, this, this promised lineage of, of this, this Messiah, this one coming, who through the, his seed, through these mothers and fathers, through his seed, God is going to redeem the entire world. Um, God doesn't uh, 
often use the, the likely, the attractive, the most powerful, the most well-known, the most eloquent. God often uses the ugly, the forgotten, the rejected. Um, and I hope that this series, it's just going to be a couple weeks here, but I hope it's an encouragement to us. And, and I'm not saying that you guys are ugly. <laughs> I think you guys are beautiful. Um, uh, but I think we, all, we, we often feel ugly, don't we? Like we, we have this sort of ugly bug that each of us carry at times. Um, I know there have been times that I have felt ugly. Uh, shocking, I know, shocking. Um, I uh, was watching the History Channel and it was a documentary on uh, the great leaders of, uh, of history and they were talking about how their face was shaped and they had these broad, big jaws and I was looking in the mirror and I was like, I don't know if I, because I've always wanted to be like a leader, you know, I'm like, I don't know if I have a ta what it takes to be a leader. Because my, my I, don't, I don't know, like a square face, you know, my face is like this, it's long. Um, my ear sticks out, have you noticed that? Look at my right ear. It sticks out. It's like me and Steve Colbert were like pals because we got this crazy ear thing going on. I was in uh, high school and I went to see an allergy doctor and the first thing he said was like, you, have you ever thought about getting your ear fixed? And I'm like, what's the matter with my ear? I came because I can't breathe. It has nothing to do with my ear. I have, thank you. I've got elf ears. I was called Dumbo as a kid by the girls growing up. Um, yeah. What else? <laughs> so uh, we all have the ugly bug, is what I'm saying. Um, we've all at times felt uh, unwanted, rejected, unlikely. Uh, it doesn't matter who we are. You know, it doesn't matter what we look like. It doesn't matter what family we come from. It doesn't matter what school we go to, how many degrees we get, or what kind of jobs we get, or whatever. It doesn't matter. We have this deep um, uh, sense that we are not good enough, that we don't make it, that we're not likely. And so what we're going to be doing is just hopefully be allowing the, the scriptures to encourage us as we profile a couple folks that were unlikely and that God used in a big way. So we're starting here with Genesis chapter 29, uh, verse 14. Laban said to him, speaking to Jacob, you are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what, tell me what your wages should be. Now, backing up just a little bit, what's going on here is Jacob, uh, who's left home because got, Esau got mad at him. He stole the inheritance, all that goodness. He, he ran away. He left home. He's now living with his mother's brother, his uncle Laban. And, and working for him. And Laban's like, Uncle Laban's like, look, just because you're a relative doesn't mean that you shouldn't get paid. How should I pay you? What, do you? what do you want? Verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The, the name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak, weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel. And said, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, let's stop right there. Did you guys catch that? Leah has weak eyes. Uh, another way to translate that is tender eyes. Oh, most theologians believe that she probably had either... Um, like a lot of moisture in her eyes, some, some issue that created a lot of moisture, and so her eyes were red and just kind of runny, or maybe she had lazy eyes or, or cross-eyed, she was cross-eyed possibly. She had something going on with her eyes. One theologian just simply puts it like this. He says, she was not agreeable to look at. <laughs> so one sister is not agreeable to look at, Leah. The other sister is gorgeous, Rachel. And, and he, the, her, her, her uh, physical looks is described with two words. It's, it's beautiful. It says Rachel was uh, beautiful and she was lovely in form, shapely. She was beautiful and she was shapely. She was gorgeous. And then there was Leah, the weak-eyed 
cross-eyed, lazy-eyed, watery-eyed, whatever it was, bleary-eyed, ugly sister. All right? Those are the, so are we getting that? I want you guys to keep that in mind. Ugly sister, pretty sister. All right? Verse, uh, where are we at? Verse 19. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man, so stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to lie with her. Of course he does. It's been seven years. He's been working for her and he wants to lie with her in the biblical sense. So Laban brought together all the people of the palace and uh, the, the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah. Remember Leah? And gave her to Jacob and Jacob lay with her. And Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter as her maidservant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then I will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. So he does it, verse 28, and Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant girl Bilhah to his daughter, uh, daughter Rachel, as her maidservant. Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. Now, when, when I was uh, younger, I remember hearing, hearing this story and um, thinking to myself, like, as, I'm, as I'm hearing it, I'm like, dang, like, Jacob got the shaft. The poor dude, you know, worked seven years with his eye on this pretty dame. And it's like all he can think about, you know, for seven years. And then the day comes and, and uh, th they have the wedding. And Uncle Laban tricks him like it's this mean little twist of things. And he takes the ugly girl and puts some, a little veil on her face. And, and they do the wedding thing and they do their, the lying thing. And then they wake up the next morning, and he's like, what happened? And he goes to Uncle Laban, and he's like, what? Yo, what, what's the deal? Like, I, I thought we had a deal. And you gave me the bleary-eyed, ugly sister. That's not the one that I wanted. And, and when, we, when we read this story, isn't that sort of our natural reaction? Because we want the guy to get the pretty girl, right? I mean, we watch the movie, and we want the guy to get the pretty girl. That's how the good stories go. That's how they end, is the good-looking guy gets the good-looking girl. But we can't see things in the, the same way that God's seeing them. We, we are so blinded. We're so blinded by beauty that we really don't even see what's going on here. See, who, who was, who's the unfortunate character? Who is the one? It's Leah. Who got the raw end of the deal? Jacob, who worked so hard and then for a week, had to wait one more week before he got the girl he wanted. Was he the one that got the raw deal? Ended up with two wives. No, I don't know. That might be a raw deal. <laughs> was, it, was it Rachel who had the raw deal who's, you know, this pretty girl just waiting, watching her Romeo work so hard for seven years. Look how much he loves me. He's out there sweating. And then that night the dad comes and, and says, nope, you're not the one who's going to be marrying him. And, and he takes this, this uh, older and uglier sister and says, she's the one that's going to be marrying him. And, 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 Poor Rachel with her sweet, like, pretty tears coming down her sweet, pretty face is like, no, but this is my man. You know, he loves me. Like, so is she the one that got the raw deal? This is, this is the way that God sees it. Because, see, we're so blinded by beauty. We're so blinded by our, our desire and our, our, really our idolatry of beauty. We don't see it the way God does. This is, this is the way God saw it.
verse 31 in chapter 29. When, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, that's what God saw. God wasn't upset for Jacob because he didn't get the pretty girl. He, he wasn't upset for the pretty girl. God's heart broke for Leah. And when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. We, we, we don't see things this way, um, as I've been saying, because we have this I truly believe it's an idolatry. I, I truly believe that we take the concept of beauty and we place it on the throne and we worship it. Um, f and we, we both do this. We both struggle, males and females. Men, I think it looks differently. That men, we have this, men have this habitual, widespread habit of objectifying, dehumanizing, and commodifying women based on their outer appearance, based on the way that they looked. And it's destructive. It's destructive to them, and it's destructive to the women. And if you don't believe that we do this, because often we can't see our own sins, just watch other men. Just sit on a park bench and just watch other men. Objectify commodify, turn, turn women into a commodity, dehumanize women based on the way that they look. And it's all about the, the beauty, the form, the face. It's an object. Women become an object. And this is subtle often. We don't realize that we do this, but, but we, we're, we're addicted to it. Why is pornography? We can't talk about an addiction to beauty without talking about pornography. Why is pornography uh, such a, an extremely rampant problem in our culture today? I mean, r read any statistic. A majority of men spend hours in front of a computer. Why? They're searching for that perfect image of beauty. They're addicted to beauty. We've got to have this perfect image. It's, it's, an, it's an idolatry. And then that leads, that's, that's extremely destructive, and that leads to further dehumanization, making women an object. I mean, on pornography, I don't want to get, get into the, the porn talk too much right now, but on that, I mean, talk about making something into an object. Um, it, it's... It, it's not human. And fellas, if, if you're looking at porn, you've got to know that those aren't even real pictures you're looking at. They are touched up. They, they're, they're, somebody's gone through Photoshop with them and made the girls uh, beyond attainable, the, the image that you're seeing. It's an object. And then what happens is we, we begin looking at women and at beauty as objects, as something to be grasped, something to, to hang on to. Now, women do this as well. Women are just as guilty of the idolatry of beauty, the addiction to beauty as are men. Women tie their self-regard to their looks, to the clothes that they wear, to where their, their, their hair is. I mean, like, it's if, 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 you know, the bad hair day thing. A guy didn't make that up. It's a girl, you know. Their shape. The, the, their skin tone. And then when we start thinking about our definition of beauty, how we have in our Western culture, how we have defined beauty. By the way, in the Western culture, and what I mean by that is in industrialized nations versus poor nations. In industrialized nations, we are th women are three to five times more likely 
to have an eating disorder than in poor nations. We're three to five times more likely to have an eating disorder than in developing nations. So that means the closer we get to the heart of Western, the Western civilization, here, right here, the closer we get to that, then the more prevalent this is, our idolatry of beauty. And then we, we think of our definition of beauty. She's helped us define beauty, hasn't she? Right? Um, <clears throat> Look, yeah, I don't know what's... I don't know what's going on with the hair. I was trying, I was actually working on that this morning, like <laughs> trying to fix the, her crazy hair, but um, there you go. Uh, definition of beauty right there, right? Do you, in the last 50 some years, we've had Barbies, uh, the uh, uh, millions and billions of dollars we spent on cosmetic surgeries to get this image is absolutely ridiculous. And we all know, I don't have to tell you, like, this whole, all the things, like, if, if this was real, like, her legs are way too long or something, and there's not enough muscle in her legs to support her breasts, and she would just fall forward. Have you ever heard that? Like, yeah. this is not a real attainable image. <laughs> Toshio, do you have a question about huh? old Barbie? Huh? She's like a wildebeest. <laughs> She's a wildebeest? I don't know about that, but... <laughs> So we have this, yeah, forget the hair. Come on. Get over the hair. Gosh, you're So we have this, this image, this unattainable image. And, and fellas, like the, the image that we see uh, that in, in marketing that people use to sell things when, when, when they use sex, which is like, what, 90% of our marketing in women. This is the image, really, that they're going for. It's like this long, sleek, slender um, well-endowed, beautifully structured face uh, person. Now, um, for my African-American sisters, we've got Black Barbie, right? Yeah, now, <laughs> this looks better. <laughs> now, I, I just want to, can I just, I'm, forgive, forgive my whiteness right now, okay? <laughs> but Black Barbie and white Barbie look exactly the same. Yes. This, the only difference is black Barbie's darker. But still, European features, all right? There's a new documentary out um, called, called Dark Girls, which has, I've only seen the, the trailer, but it's a 10-minute trailer, so I feel like I've seen it. Yeah. Uh, you can Google it and find a trailer. Maybe it's something we should show here, but it's, it, it, it uh, interviews African-American young women and girls who in their entire lives have been made to feel ugly because we have defined beauty by European standards as well. So not only do we have this unattainable picture of beauty, but we also have defined beauty through European standards as opposed to African standards. Is that, are you guys tracking with me here? Yep. And so what I'm simply saying is this, is we have unattainable standards of beauty. If your skin color is not right, you know, it's got to be lighter or your, your eyes need to be lighter or your hair needs to be longer and straighter or you need to be skinnier, you need to have longer legs, you need to, I don't know what it might be. But we have unattainable standards of beauty and we worship that. That is our God. That is the idolatry of beauty right there, is worshiping these unattainable standards. So what is, what is the answer? What's the solution? Just to try harder? Well, I'll try to rethink these things. I'll try, to, I'll try harder to, to recognize like the beauty, you know, like Shallow Hal. Remember Shallow Hal? What a terrible movie. And I'll tell you why. The, the focus of Shallow Hal was all right, she's ugly, but there's some beautiful qualities to her. And if you could just look at those beautiful qualities, then maybe you can get over her ugliness. That was like the message of Shallow Hell. That did nothing for me as a young college student. I was like, nah, like, I'll still take the pretty girl. You know what I mean? Like, 
That did nothing for me other than make me a little more shallow, I think. Now, I never thought I'd be preaching against shallow how, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about like, oh, let's recognize the inner beauty in everybody and recognize that some pretty girls are really ugly on the inside and some, some overweight, cross-eyed girls are actually really, really pretty on the inside. You know what I mean? Like, that's not what we're getting at and that doesn't work. It's not about just trying harder, trying to see somebody with it through different eyes or a different perspective or through the way that Tony Robbins might see them. Um, a model named Laura Krauss uh, Kellenberg. She was a model uh, for Christian Dior in Paris. And she admits her own, as a model, uh, her own idolatry to beauty, of beauty her struggle with this. And, and on that, she says this. She says, at age 19, my idea of beauty was what others thought of me. My idea of beauty was what others thought of me. If, if people approved of me and wanted to book me for a modeling job, then I concluded that I must be pretty. She then goes on to say, uh, she gives two other reasons, or two other ways that she would sort of uh, track her level of beauty. Number two, it was by association. If, if I was around beautiful people or people that I considered to be beautiful, if I was associated with, with other people that were recognized as pretty or beautiful, then that made me feel beautiful. And then the third one was by the kind of men that she attracted. If she attracted men that were good looking or the kind of men that she wanted to attract or the kind of men that other, her friends thought were good looking, then that made her feel beautiful. Now, what I want to point out with this is, is this. Number one, she was, this is how she defined beauty. It was what others thought of her. It was by association, who she was associated with. And it was by the men she was attracted. It wasn't by the image that she was seeing in the mirror. Now, isn't that interesting? Because we think we even know what beauty is. We think we have an image. But those folks in our world who actually pretty much meet that criteria, they have that image, their models, look in the mirror and they still don't see it. And what we're finding then is that we're not defining beauty based on our reflection. We're not, de we're not deciding whether or not we're beautiful or ugly based on what we see in the mirror. That's not the defining factor. The defining factor is what people think of us, who is associated with us, and by the kind of people that are attracted to us, the men that are attracted, the women that are attracted to us. And this leads us then to what the psychologist would tell us is, is this. The reason that we uh, have this idolatry of beauty, the reason that we are addicted to beauty is because we really don't like what's on the inside. We really don't like what's on the inside. And so then it becomes a mask. Everything becomes a mask to cover up what's on the inside. The way, the, the fact that we feel rejected, the fact that we feel unloved, the fact that attractive people aren't attracted to us. And so because of that then, we mask. We, cosmetics, clothes, hair, uh, the, 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 right, the right kind of girl by our side, right? Fellas, our trophy. And it's really not about the girl that we're attracted to. It's about the kind of girl that we want to be associated with. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me? If, if our buddies can look at our girl and say, dang, she's hot. She's good looking. Then what does that say about you? I mean, it's not really about her, right? It's about you. It's about you needing validation. It's about what's going on on the inside and the fact that you don't really like what's on the inside. If, if uh, for, for you females, you, you put on, do your thing, get the surgery, put the makeup on, do whatever. And if someone comes along and says, you are gorgeous, you're beautiful, you feel beautiful, right? You feel validated. But if they come along, even after all of that, you've done your best. 
and someone comes along and says, you are ugly. Now, to prove this point, um, if, if my wife tells me that I'm ugly, it doesn't matter what anybody else says. You could all tell me, Joel, you, you're handsome. You know, the ear thing, it's just like, it's okay, it's just character. You know, it doesn't matter. If my wife thinks that I'm ugly, I'm ugly, right? No. If my wife thinks that I'm beautiful, if she says, Joel, you are a studly looking man, <laughs> then all of you could tell me that I'm ugly, and I don't care, because I know that I'm beautiful. Right? See, if the person who we care about the most validates us. See, what, what, what's, what being beautiful is, is validation of who you are. It's, it's somebody accepting you, and not just accepting you, but actually appreciating your skin and your, just your hair and just the way that you look, and, and then everything that's on the inside. They, they appreciate you as a person. And so when the person that you care about the most appreciates you in that way and validates you and, and says you're beautiful, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. Correct? This is the problem that Leah is having here. The person that she wants uh, to be loved by will not ever love her. Her entire life is spent seeking his love. And he spends his entire life not loving her. See, Jacob's doing the same thing. Jacob sees the pretty girl and says, my life will be fine and dandy forever and ever if I can get the pretty girl. And I can be associated with her. I don't like what's on the inside. I don't like who I really am. But if I can be linked up with beauty, if I can be united with beauty, then that becomes my mask. And I'm good now. And then Leah starts to do it as well. Leah, uh, searching after the, the, the love of, of her, her, her husband, is, she's craving for him to look at her and to validate her and to say, you're beautiful. You're beautiful. That's what she wants. God, God sees her in her pain. He opens her womb, as it says, and then she has four children. She has six total, but there's four in the next couple verses. She has four sons. Verse 32, she has Reuben. Verse 33, she has Simeon. Verse 34, she has Levi. And verse 35, she has Judah. Now what I want to do is I want to just briefly look at, she, she says a little phrase, a little quote, at the birth of each one of her children. And I want to just look at these quotes, and I think we can learn something from it. So verse 32, she has Reuben, and she says, It is because the Lord has seen my misery, surely my husband will love me now. So she recognizes that God has seen her misery. Her hope, though, is that now her husband will love her. Now he'll love me because I gave him a son. Doesn't happen. Verse 33, she has another son, Simeon, and she says, because the Lord heard that I'm not loved, he gave me this one too. She's mourning the fact that she has no love from her husband, Verse 34, she has Levi. Now at last he will become attached to me. I've borne him three sons. So now finally, maybe he will love me. Finally, my husband will look at me and say, you're beautiful. I love you. Because I've, borne him, I've given him three sons. She's again back to hoping that her husband would love her. In all, she had six children. And with every child, there's a little quote that comes with this birth. And five out of six of the quotes are about her husband not loving her, desiring her husband to love her in some fashion. There's one child that she gives birth to, and her quote is completely different. There's one child she gives birth to, and, and with that one she says, this time, for this child, this time I will praise the Lord. And you know which child that was? Judah. And who came from the tribe of Judah? Jesus. Jesus. The Lion of Judah. 
Five out of six were focusing on the fact that she doesn't have her husband's attention and love and validation. But with Judah, I'll read it to you, with Judah in verse 34, again she conceived and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now, uh, I'm sorry, verse 30, uh, 35, skip forward one verse. She conceived again and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. And she stopped having children. Judah. For through Judah's seed, the Messiah will come. Complete validation. Now, what is it about Judah's seed? What is it about Jesus that makes everything okay? What is it about Jesus that dramatically changes our concept and our understanding and even our definition of beauty? I want to I point something out to you. In, I, in Isaiah 53, uh, the, the prophet, you can turn there if you'd like, but you don't have to. The, the prophet in Isaiah chapter 53 is giving a description of this coming Messiah, Jesus. And he, he, part of his description, I think, is absolutely shocking. In which he says, the Messiah will have nothing in his appearance with which we'll desire him. There will be nothing about his looks which will be desirable. And then he goes on to describe this and he says he's, he won't have, and he uses two words, the Messiah will have no beauty and he uses the word, the translators translate it majesty, but it's the same word for shapeliness, for form. These are the exact same two words used to describe Rachel's beauty. Rachel had was described with having, uh, she was beautiful and she, she was shapely. And Jesus, the, uh, Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 53, will come with no beauty and with no shapeliness. Which draws the reader back to Genesis 29. Jesus intentionally, intentionally came to this world not as Rachel, but he came into this world as Leah. He came into this world not as this beautiful, lush, gorgeous woman, but he came to this world as this cross-eyed girl. Why? To show us true love. To show us what love really means and to show us true beauty. To show us what beauty really is. Now, beauty could also, another word we could use for beauty is glory, I think. And I think I can make a case for that. But Jesus laid aside his glory as he came to this world. He laid it all aside. All of his beauty, all of his, the glory of God left it and came into this world as Leah with no beauty, with no form, nothing that we would look at and, and be like, man, that's attractive. Now, is that not, does that not fascinate you? That when the creator God came into this world, he didn't come as a good-looking person? That's amazing. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul shows us how this then changes our definition of beauty. How this changes our, even the way that we see ourselves and our own beauty. In Ephesians 5, Paul says that he, Jesus, gave, gave himself up completely for his bride, the church, to make her holy, to make her pure, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. Jesus came into this world with, no, with nothing, no glory, so that he may make you beautiful. That was his sacrificial act of love, was coming to this world and making you his bride, preparing you to be his wife. And he wants a beautiful bride and he is making you beautiful. Now, beauty is, is not a, um, a bad thing. Beauty is not an evil thing. Uh, Beauty keeps us going. Um, 
I mean, just, just think about the ways that we use beauty, not necessarily human physical beauty, but just beauty in general. Like, why is it that when, when we're tired, when we're exhausted, uh, that we go to the ocean or we, we take a walk through the park and we look at the trees turning orange and red? And that rejuvenates us, right? Why is it that we listen to the music that we find beautiful or, or, or a film that we find beautiful? Why do we do these things? It's because it keeps us going. It energizes us. What was it that kept Jesus going? Lay, laying aside all of his glory, coming into this earth with the purpose of dying. What was it that kept him going through the cross? What was he looking at? What was he moving toward? The joy set before him, God's glory. And I would say this, he was motivated by, by the prospect of the beauty that will be and is in you and I. You see, the gospel is this. The gospel says that through Christ coming into this world and making himself nothing and taking on our God's wrath on our behalf and raising up to life, that we have been given the glory of Christ. We've been given the very the, the face of Christ so that when God looks at us, he sees Christ. And, and we are cleansed with no stain and no wrinkle. And we look in the mirror and we realize that we are loved. You see, if... if if I, Jess is the most important thing to me and she validates me by saying I'm beautiful, what if God was the most important thing in our lives and we recognized that God looks at us and says, because of Christ, you have been given his beauty and his glory and you are loved. You are validated. You're beautiful. It's, it's not until... We, we, we realize this. It's not until we, we grasp, we, we fully understand the gospel. It's not until we understand the fact that we have been made whole and we've been made beautiful and we, we have the very the beauty and the righteousness of Christ that's just radiate, radiating from within us. Um, it's, it's not about then what people think of you, who you're associated with, uh, who, who, who wants to date you? If, if our beauty is defined by what people think of us and we recognize that the creator of this world through Christ thinks that we are worth marrying. He is preparing us to be our bride and he is making us beautiful. If the creator God believes that, then why does it matter what other people think? If, if, if Jesus wants to associate himself with us, then why does it matter who, whoever else we're associated with? If Christ saw us as worthy objects of his love to die for, then why does it matter who else wants to be with us, to date us, to love us? And then see, what happens is, is this, this isn't just like this shallow how kind of try hard to recognize that you've got beauty in there somewhere. What this is, is to recognize that one, our concept of beauty is really tweaked and messed up. Our definition of beauty is really wrong. It's very perverted. Um, but also to recognize then that, that this kind of radiance that, that, uh, that stems from knowing that we are loved. It truly does make us beautiful on the inside and the out. One of the most beautiful women I know is 104 years old. She has glazed over eyes. Her skin is just sagging off of her body. But she, is, she radiates. She's beautiful. And it comes from walking years and years and years of walking, knowing that she is loved. And it shows on the outside. And, and we all know this. Like, we all know that there are some folks like, who, who maybe they have some sort of um, disfigurement on their face. And, and we say things like, man, like, I don't, even rec I don't even see it anymore. You know, I, I just, I see them. That's what we're talking about here. 
But what that is at the core is, is Christ who's making us beautiful. And as we then become filled with the glory of, of Jesus Christ, then not only do we look in the mirrors and we, and we say we are, we're validated, we're beautiful, but we also recognize that in other people, in ourselves, in each other. And we begin to have a whole new concept and understanding of what beauty is. And, it, and, and this idolatry of beauty then is completely done away with. We're moving away from it. It's, the, it's not luring any longer. Now, I would wonder if there are any fellas in the room who have been kneeling at the altar of uh, beauty. It's uh, the, the desire, the search for beauty is, is an addiction. And you recognize these subtle ways that you do commodify women or objectify them, dehumanize them. And maybe it has led to pornography. Maybe it has led to shallow relationships. Maybe it has led to impossible standards that we either hold our wives up to or our dates up to. And we've got to recognize that we are missing out. Now, uh, for those of you who are single, there might be a lot of uh, women out there who would make very fine dates and even wives. But you have these pornographic ideas of what your wife should look like and be. These unattainable standards. These, this shallow, childish addiction. And you will never... You'll, you'll never be able to love unless God opens your eyes and you remove this, you, you remove beauty, this, this, uh, this desire for beauty, you remove that from the seat of God in your life and you allow Christ to begin doing this work because going back to this whole idea of of masking, the reason we do that is because of what we don't like on the inside. Or it's because we don't like what's on the inside. The reason we do that is because it's beauty becomes a mask for us. And if we can become associated with, with someone else that, that we call beautiful, then, then we're good to go. And it's only when we allow Christ to do that healing work within us and we recognize that, that God affirms us and validates us that we can begin to remove ourselves from, from, from that altar. Or women. If there's any women who uh, are uh, endlessly critiquing yourself, your hair, your looks, your, your skin tone, your shape, your weight, you're critiquing uh, who it is that wants to be with you, wants to date you, doesn't want to be with you, the way your husband treats you, the way your husband looks at you, um, whether or not he thinks you're beautiful, whether or not anybody thinks you're beautiful. It's like this, this constant like, record that keeps playing in your head every morning that you wake up and look in the mirror. The first thing that Adam and Eve did when they sinned was what? Covered they covered up. And we've been doing that ever since, haven't we? We cover up. We hide. And we think more hiding is the answer. Better makeup, more surgeries, better clothes, better hair. We, th we think that's the answer and it's not. Jesus came not as Rachel. He came as Leah to make you beautiful. And the prospect of beauty in you took Jesus to the cross. Will you allow him to prepare you as his bride, to wash you with water, remove every stain and wrinkle, make you beautiful, to validate you, to love you. And we, we might say, Jesus, I've been uglier on the outside than I have been on the uh, inside. Um, I got that wrong. Jesus, I've been uglier. <laughs> 
on the inside than I have been on the outside. And really that's where my problem is. It's not about what I see in the mirror, it's about what's in here. And that's why I'm so concerned about with the exterior. It's because I just want to cover up what's in here. Prepare me as your bride. Marry me. Make me whole. Make me beautiful. Amen? <clears throat> well, let's pray. God, I uh, thank you for your word. The scriptures uh, simply amaze me. There is so much there. The more we look, the more we see. I thank you for coming as Leah, not as Rachel. For, the, for these, uh, these examples of, <coughs> excuse me, of unlikely people that you used to show us, to teach us something bigger about your character, about your nature. And God, as, as we are people of Adam and Eve, people who cover up, people who hide because we don't like what's on the inside. And God, we've, we've taken beauty, something that's, that's good, we've, but we've taken it, we've made it an idol. We worship it. And we, we define it. And our definitions are off. So God, we repent of that. And I ask that you teach each one of us what it means to completely fall into your arms, to be made whole, to be, be, be made beautiful, to be washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, to be prepared as your beautiful bride. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.